Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Daphne Town, co-founder and CEO at Chowley, a data insights and intelligence company based in Shanghai. We talk about why it's vital for companies to be data obsessed in China, innovations in the data and AI space in China, what growth hacking is, and why it's applied mostly to earlier stage startups, a typical customer journey in China versus that of a customer in the West, creating brand loyalty in China, and how a business can avoid data overload. Enjoy. I think what's important to, to know about the Chinese consumers is that the social confirmation is, is really important. Traditionally, it has been a lot of trust issues with the products that were delivered. Uh, and you, you expected something of a specific quality. And then when it got delivered, you, you were disappointed. So having someone else telling you that, your pro- that the product is good is, I think, more valuable than anywhere else here. And what you see nowadays is that more and more of the social media channels obviously are also building in the shopping functionalities. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Daphne, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start out, as usual, with a little bit of an introduction into who you are and, of course, how did you end up in China? Sure. Um, so, yeah, as you said, I'm Daphne. I'm originally Dutch from a town close to Amsterdam. Uh, I'm the founder of Chowli and Webshop in China. And uh, how do I get here? Gosh, uh, I was first sent uh, as an exchange student to Hong Kong, actually. And I completely fell in love with uh, the region and with China specifically. And uh, so after half a year of uh, studying and uh, personal development, so to say, I decided that I, uh, that I really wanted to come back. Also, as a, as a young girl, as long as I can remember, I wanted to become an entrepreneur and, and have my own business. And so I did have a few corporate jobs, the last one being a risk analyst at Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, but it just wasn't for me. And so basically, then I decided that I really wanted to combine the entrepreneurship and focusing on China. Uh, and that was actually at the time when Alibaba uh, announced Tmall Global. So it would be easier for overseas brands to enter the Chinese e-commerce market. Uh, yeah, and then me and my uh, former business partner realized it's going to be a huge opportunity. Let's focus on that. Awesome. Thank you so much. For the small number of people who, who may not know, why is data so important for 21st century businesses to be focused on? Wow. Yeah. Well, the data is, I would say, extremely important, perhaps like for two things. On the one hand, it, it, it kind of allows you to make uh, educated decisions uh, just instead of, you know, basing your decisions on, on, on gut feeling. And, and I think especially in, 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 a, chi- in, a, comp- or sorry, in a country like China or perhaps also the States, right? 
it's not easy to succeed. Uh, and, and, and many brands prepare because they, they don't, or they fail because they don't prepare well and they don't really know what they get themselves into. So using data as a preparation point as understanding the market is just a, is a good way to assess your success and to see if indeed you should put your money on that. Um, and, uh, and I guess the other part is also that data in itself help you assess whether your performance is okay, right? Whether you are successfully entering the market. Uh, have, having that data at hand is, is, I would say, extremely important. How amazing is it to be doing what you do in China, which for me is the land of data. I mean, it's where it's going to be the heartbeat of artificial intelligence globally moving forward. Uh, I, I can't imagine a better place to be in a, in a space where you're, I'm dealing with data. Absolutely. Data. And, and also in our case, a lot of it obviously relates to the data of e-commerce uh, in a country with 900 million internet users, everyone you know doing their online shopping, uh, it's like 52% of total retail is online. So there's so much going on here. New platforms uh, establishing like on, uh, so frequently. Uh, also, again, bringing more data. So, yeah, extremely excited to be here. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, and we're going to get into overviews of the types of data and stuff. But before we get there, what types of innovations uh, are you seeing that, you know, in that kind of data uh, AI types of space um, that, you know, is just kind of making you so happy to be doing what you do in China versus some other place in the world? I think in, in terms of data innovations, it's, it's just for me, what's very interesting to see here in China is, I guess, the, mind sh the mindset shift of how to use and apply the data, right? I think when uh, like years ago, there was a lot of businesses, also because there was a lot of, of resources available, it was just try and see what happens, right? A lot of trial and error. Whereas now that the uh, things are becoming more mature here, it's not only the availability of the data, but also how it's being used is becoming more and more advanced and the insights that are, are being uh, drawn out from it. So, so what, what we see is that, uh, especially, you know, when, when it comes to growth hacking, uh, with how can you become uh, and have a successful product launch on the Chinese market, uh, it's not just try it, but prepare it well with the data at hand. And, and, and that's, uh, for me, a, a nice thing to see happening in, in, in terms of the data innovation. Growth hacking is a term, a bit of a, bit of a Silicon Valley term that gets thrown around a lot. Can you maybe do us a favor and just break down in, in simple forms, layman terms, what is growth hacking essentially? Sure. Yeah, because there's so many definitions and, and everyone's talking about it, I, I guess, indeed in Silicon Valley and it's like this buzzword. But what it really comes down to, for me at least, is that it's a relatively simple way of, of trying and validating new things. So, so basically, it's a data-driven mini experiment where you start with an assumption and you, uh, yeah, in, in, a, in, a in a small micro experiment, see whether uh, that assumption is valid based on data. So a very straightforward example is A-B testing, where you would have, for instance, two different banners or two different uh, types of packaging for a product. And by showing that to similar target audience, you can then look at the data, what resonates best. Uh, and, 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 and I think what's important to know is that it's okay to fail, 
right? So traditionally you had like this very big marketing budget and it would be spent perhaps on, on TV ads or, and now where you have uh, perhaps also smaller budgets, you really break it down and you want to test small scale and you want to know if something doesn't work because uh, that's good. Then, you know, to not continue. But then there's also the small successes. And when something is a success in a small way, you can then scale it up. So yeah, data-driven mini experiments, smart, start small and then scale up from there. Can you talk to us a little bit about why, you know, we talked about it being a buzzword, right? A Silicon Valley buzzword. Why is it such a buzzword? I mean, I, I, I'm, it's a bit of a leading question because I think I have a good idea of why, having worked in, in kind of the, the, the early stage tech realm for quite a while. But can you speak a little bit towards startups, right? And they are growth hacking um, all the time, all day long. How does growth hacking apply so directly to early stage companies formation? Yeah, well, because the growth hacking applies where you're like, you really work with the MVPs, right? With the minimum viable products. And perhaps there's not even a product yet. So when we work with startups, but even also with like uh, the, the, the corporate, you know, like innovators and incubators, then if you want to trust a new product or a new service, you're going to want to have it in front of the people before you even develop it yet to get their input and get their feedback and see how they respond to it. You show the products already to a consumer with mock-ups and the product doesn't even exist yet. And then with the data that you get in, you will then uh, iterate and, and make your changes accordingly. So with the startups, having smaller budgets and not having that much time also at hand, you want to have short sprints, get it in front of the target audience, the sooner the better and incorporate the feedback from there. And, and I guess that's what growth hacking and the mindset facilitates. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Oh, I ab absolutely. I mean, it's it's a you know the build, measure, learn uh, cycle that was made famous by the Lean Startup Machine of build something, anything. But the point is, build the thing that you can learn from, and that means you know anything that can give you data, right? And so you want to focus on getting data. You want to focus on clean data. You want to focus on data that gives you answers, and not necessarily end game answers, but the answer to what the next experiment should be. And it, then you just like rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat. And that way, as a startup, you're never or at least as as few times as possible guessing what to build next. And then it's a you know, because it's an old adage, especially in startup measure what they do, not what they say. And that's where the data comes in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think also what you're right is that, that you know, that building to, to test and, and measure a lot of people have the mindset that there needs to be a real product, right? It needs to be already finalized because otherwise you can't show. But I think there is like uh, even Alibaba with like Timo Innovation Center, they did this really cool project with Snickers where it was about what should be the next new flavor. Uh, and instead of having that produced, they just had some crazy flavors and they showed the banners in front of the people on, on the Alibaba platform. And then the spicy flavor was the most popular one. And that was the one that was then actually produced and is now available in all offline stores as well. So the product doesn't need to be physically be developed in order to put it in front of the people. That's right. I mean, and you know, once you have some attention, you can start to mine 
that attention via reaction and sentiment. And, you know, this is the types of, of data that, that one can start to collect. So may I ask you, could you give us a bit of an overview of the types of data that are available in China and maybe how they differ from other parts of the world in their form or their uh, forms of collection, the, the modules, uh, the modes in which you collect that data? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I would I would specifically focus on the e-commerce and marketing data because that's you know the, the the experience and the background. So I mean, there's so much and so robust. Like mm. there's just and there's so much of it too. Like yeah, that's that that's the thing. There's so much of it. Yeah. So I I think that's also uh, in China you know, the, the issue is not the availability of the data. I'd say perhaps also on the contrary, there might be even too much data. And what they say, like you know. It, Data is the is the new oil, but similar to oil, data needs to be refined in order for it to be used, right? They're usable. So, um, uh, so I think when it comes to the data that we normally look at, you you're gonna want to have that funnel where you start with an overall overview of the categories or the industry. You want to understand how does the overall market size, but also data related to specific categories on on the e-commerce platforms, Alibaba being the biggest ones. So uh, that's more on the e-commerce side of it. And obviously, that's a publicly available data. And, and, and when you're talking about marketing tools, they're not just on the e-commerce platforms, but also the social media channels uh, to see what are the brand accounts doing, what are the influencers uh, so that's that, that's also related to the engagement and the brand awareness. How it differs is that in China, we work with a lot of closed ecosystems, which is very frustrating uh, at times, but it's very difficult that way to track conversion when there's different platforms being involved. So in the West, we're very used to having Facebook, Instagram, your website, everything's integrated, right? You have your pixels, you can do the retargeting. Uh, however, in China, there's uh, there's the very the closed ecosystems mean that if you use a social media channel, for instance, WeChat, but you're using uh, a uh, the e-commerce system on on Alibaba, then these two can't communicate. So there's no flow of data, and then you don't know who of your followers on WeChat actually ended up buying your product. So. It's always the data game is to see how can you get that unique identifier and link the different uh, ecosystems. But um, I guess that's the biggest difference, really. Yes, exactly. I mean, you're you're speaking about something that I, I mean, I remember I used to call it walled gardens, right? Even just looking at um, e-commerce, the way that Google made a lot of money off of purchases on Amazon because the path was do the Google research on what to buy on Google. And then go over and purchase on Amazon, and then Amazon would feed revenue share back to to Google. That you know, even back in the day when Baidu was very relevant, you know, Alibaba, they would they would block search results on on Baidu so that Baidu wasn't able to get in on the revenue, and they were kind of cut. You would so you would go up into the Baidu environment, do your product research, and then you would have to actually exit the Baidu environment and go back up into an Alibaba environment and then make your purchase or a Jingdong or something and make your purchase then. And so they're just kind of like cutting each other out. And that also shaped the the customer journey, right? Because you're totally right. So where we were used, I think now more and more your customer journey start perhaps on Amazon. But yeah, for a very long time, for me, it was just starting at Google. If I wanted to buy anything, that was my first stop. And then from there on, my customer journey continued. 
uh, perhaps to e-commerce platforms in China. Indeed, that wasn't the case. So the customer journey here, especially if you have a very strong purchase intent, it's just directly on your Tmall, your Alibaba app. Uh, so uh, and that's where you start searching, and that's where you have your keyword bidding, and you have all the advertisement tools built in their ecosystem. Uh, yeah, so not uh, so, so Baidu wasn't wasn't able to take a part of that. Yeah, and if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could step back. You you touched on it, the customer journeys. I wanted to talk a little bit about customer journeys. I'm I'm inspired to talk about customer journeys right now. Can you tell us a little bit about what the customer journey looks like in China and how it differs from maybe what they experience in the West? So uh, the major difference, I would say, is the number of touch points. I think there is a McKinsey research where they said that on average in the West, it's around six touch points with a brand before the purchase. And, and in China, that's, that's around eight or nine. So I think the Chinese consumers overall are very savvy. And, and when dealing with a new brand or a new product, they, they kind of do their online due diligence, so to say, right? So when it comes to the customer journey, obviously, you know, it starts with the awareness. How do you know about a specific product uh, or service? And, and, and that awareness is either on the social media channels or, for instance, on, on the e-commerce platforms directly, right? Forms of keywords and paid advertisements. And I think that what is an, what's important to, to know about the Chinese consumers is that the social confirmation is, is really important. There, there traditionally has been a lot of trust issues with the products that were delivered. Uh, and you, you expected something of a specific quality. And then when it got delivered, you, you were disappointed. So having someone else telling you that, your pro- that the product is good is, I think, more valuable than anywhere else here. So uh, either your friends or, 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 or family or you know, in your direct circle, but also the influencers, which you call KOLs, the key opinion leaders in China, are extremely important. So if they promote a product, then you would see a, a, a very high result in that. Uh, and, and they just, the Chinese consumers want to understand more uh, about also a bit how serious you are for the Chinese market. So if you're a new brand, uh, even though they would buy on the Alibaba platform, because that's where you have your consumer protection, they'd still see, are you active on social media channels? Do you have a Chinese website? So yeah, is there, there, there's a lot of touch points. They, uh, they, they do their, their research. And what you see nowadays is that more and more of the social media channels obviously are also building in the shopping functionalities. So you know, even Douyin, TikTok has announced their, that it's able that you're able as a brand to have a flagship store. So it's important. It's it's interesting. I would say to see how the customer journey might change. I did want to ask a question about loyalty and the importance of loyalty. I know that um, this is definitely something that is uber important in China. Can you talk about just, you know, even from your perspective, um, the data around and what you've seen as far as brand loyalty, product loyalty, how hard is it to get? How hard is it to keep? Interesting topic. Yeah. Brand loyalty, I think in China is a, it's a, it's a major topic, right? For brands. I mean, all of us know that the cost of acquisition for a new customer uh, is extremely high, right? So you're going to only through longer time and repetitive purchases are really going to make a profit on, on a customer. But how do you, how do you get them back? I, I think what we see from working with the brands is, um, and, and, and this is like a common theme in China where 
do you go for short-term short-term wins versus a more long-term focus? So particularly when you're working with Chinese um, partners, like a Tmall partner, uh, who want to have like a high revenue, they might take a, a strategy that is not very sustainable in the long run. So when you do, for instance, heavy price cutting, right? China is a country where the hongbaos, the the, dis, the discount coupons. Uh, it's a it's a popular game. Uh, consumers are always looking for a bargain. However, if if you you know that can deteriorate your positioning and attract the wrong customer base. So I think, in my opinion, it starts with attracting and focusing on your true customers, your target audience that that you know that also, for instance, have the financial means to come back and buy the product without the hongbaos. Uh, and 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 this so this this relates to which key opinion leaders, which influencers you work with, right? What what is their fan base, and and uh, are they only here to buy once because it's at a discount, or uh, do they have the potential to come back? So it starts at the at the beginning, I would say, <laughs> the recruitment of your customer. Yeah, tell us about a little bit about that world of you know the the key opinion leaders, just because. You know, over here in the West, you know, the Kardashians and Kylie Jenner and, uh, you know, some of these people and they're very famous and they have a lot of followers. That is <laughs> the tip of the iceberg. I mean, that entire world just goes bonkers when you start talking about it when it comes to China. Can you, you know, just talk a little bit about, you know, that world, the KOLs, the influencers, the the live streaming, just you know, touch on all of those points. Sure. Yeah. I don't even know where to begin, right? The whole KOL industry here, (laughs) it's just insane almost is the influencers have indeed such a big influence on the shoppers that they, you know, there was one, the the, the famous uh, female influencer, she's doing a a deal with uh, uh, selling mini, mini Coopers, the car. Uh, Her name is Becky. And and she, she sold like hundreds of cars, minis in just five minutes time. I think recently there was even like a, 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 an exhibition to uh, uh, you know the Mars or uh, so, some kind of space space uh, trip, and then even that was managed to be sold because of the use of a KOL. So uh, this whole live streaming, whole sharing the products, it, it's it's an industry that that we don't even now half of in the West. So they have their own agents obviously they have their managers and you know depending on the follower base and and how good they're they're doing then yeah they're they're earning so much money because it's a commission on sales as well i think what's what's important for brands to realize because often what we see with the deals with the KOLs is that they're for instance uh you know sales targets but that it's also important to have a clause in there or, or just mentioning that they can't the return rate can't be too high uh, because there's a lot of fake sales in there as well, right? So as with anything else in China, you just need to carefully select who you're working with and how trustworthy are they. And also, then again, how trustworthy is their data? Yes, they might have a lot of sales with previous campaigns, but also look at the returns and see what was actually the net effect of a, of a campaign. But yeah, live streaming is here. Uh, it's a bit like what we had when I was younger with Telcel, right? Just television and someone promoting products. And this is just an ongoing thing where you have whole farms with, I don't know how many phones all live streaming the same person at the same time to get the biggest reach out there. I would imagine, given the amount of data, the access to the data, um, that there might actually be a problem of too much data. 
Can you talk a little bit maybe about data overload? What do you do to ensure that brands are able to to solve that and not fall into the trap of just being smothered and under an avalanche of data? Yeah, because there's just so much data out there that it's it's hard to know where to start. What we want to make sure is that we combine the different data sources, both the publicly available data as well as the store backends data or any you know campaign related data. And then have that in a very easy to understand, clear uh, dashboards. Um, so that almost automatically, you know, from looking at the dashboards, you would see what are, you know, what are the insights, where to make adjustments on a campaign level, for instance. So I think ha- having the data in a way that it's easy to understand and interpret uh, is important. Uh, and ideally in one source, instead of all the different data sources, all the different backends, have it in one central location that makes it easier and less time consuming to uh, to analyze. But, but still, even, even then, you see that a lot of brands and, and, and but also team up partners or marketing agencies, they don't necessarily have the resources to analyze it. Is you, know, you can look at the data, but ultimately data in itself, it, it's just a snapshot. You always want to have a look at how do I perform against the same time period last year? So your own, uh, uh, you know, the, your personal de- development or the brand's prefer- uh, development. And of course, you like to benchmark uh, industry rights and your top performance. I mean, if you have the ambition to be the number one or the number two in a category, you need to understand how well is the current top performing so that you can set that as your as your goal, right, the, to work on. I think it's important to then, when you look at the data, the next part is, well, what are we going to do next? Should a company ever stop collecting data? No. Well, I think a company should carefully. So I think a big risk or pitfall is that it's not about the quantity, right? So because there is so much data, I think it's more important to understand and start with what are your business questions, right? So whenever we work with a brand, it's like, what would you like to know? What what are your biggest challenges right now? You know, what's your objective? What's your goal overall? And how can then data help you to achieve your goals, so oftentimes people are just like, oh, nice, this is another data tool or, oh, there's, there's more data available there. But it's not necessarily the more, the better. It's constantly looking at what are my business questions? What are we trying to achieve? And then see if data is missing, uh, of course, or then you can enrich your, your data source. But uh, so in terms of don't, don't stop collecting data, but perhaps stop adding new sources just for the sake of having more data. Right. I think that that's a that's a very astute point. I remember back in the day, you know, we used to we used to say like try to collect data, but then you you can't argue with data. However, if you want a better answer, ask a better question. So if you want better data or the data isn't what you were hoping for, don't blame the data, blame the collection technique. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, and and I think what yeah, but what we often encounter is that you know, we ask questions, you know, where there, there, there's, there's a brand then having different, they're, they're selecting between different data providers. And we always would ask the question, well, what are you trying to achieve with it? Indeed, what are the questions that you want to have answered? And oftentimes when we ask this, there's, there's silence. They're, they, they, they go like, hmm, you know, I, I just had the task to select a data provider, but I'm not necessarily sure 
like where are we getting with the data? So um, yeah, I think that that's, that should be your starting point with your, your questions that you want to have answered. So when it comes to gathering data, um, especially in a place like China, what kind of technologies, softwares, apps do you have at your disposal there to collect data? Again, also in this case, it comes back, it comes down to which question do you like to have answered, right? So, uh, right. for instance, when, when we're doing like a larger growth hacking uh, projects or like a 15-week program, we first start with the customer discovery, right? So you want to understand your customers better in order to then provide services or products that the customer needs, right? That is solving their pain points. So when it comes to Understanding the pain points of a customer, we normally use a few survey tools. They have a they they have a large option or large reach, and they have the option to target uh, very specifically, right? So if you want to uh, have the answers from a, a mother with a, a child in a specific age category living somewhere, so you you have all those tags that you can use. So survey tools is really more to understand and have an idea of the, the customer discovery phase to, to understand their pain point uh, and the customer's challenges then. And the tools that we would then use next to kind of validate if a, uh, the product market fit, right? If you have a potential solution in mind, if you want to launch a new tea or a cookie or a candy bar, or then we would more use the either the e-commerce platforms because that's where you can get a lot of data. You can target, for instance, cost visitors of the competing stores and get their customer profiles. And this is very insightful. So you then understand, well, female, male, where are they based, uh, but also preference of you know, their, their spending and, and income levels. So it's, it's an interesting uh, uh, tool to, to gather data. There's a few, uh, I would say also free and, and publicly to use tools. I'm afraid all of them are in Chinese, uh, but again, uh, I'd be happy to put that in the post. So if you want to do some preliminary, you know, research on on uh, on the market, or uh, then and you could use these tools and see, well, what are the keyword searches? How many people are looking for specific products on specific platforms? So happy to share some of the data tools that we use. Okay, great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Where do companies go wrong or make mistakes in your experience in trying to leverage data? I think overall, um, well, one part, major part is is the focus on on the quantity uh, instead of the quality of the data. And as we mentioned, the quality really relates to you know the questions that you want to have answered. So the the, the approach to using data should be you know there there should be a nice ma- good method behind it, a methodology where you first come together with your team. See which which uh, you know what are what are what are the challenges and where do you like to get an answer to and then from there find which data sources uh, could you could help you with that um, so uh, and 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 not necessarily the more the better and I think not, and also in, uh, what we see often is that there's not really a dedicated person a team well if not a person who is there to kind of not only analyze the data but also verify the reliability of the data and the credibility. Yeah, I want to move to talking a little bit about kind of the, the the first person data, types of data that you collect yourself. And, you know, we did talk a little bit about if you want a better answer, ask a better question. So let me ask you this. What kind of first person data are you trying to get? What 
what are those good questions? And I realized that the answer could be, well, it depends on the brand and the product and that. And I get it in the platform that you're trying to mine from. But, you know, maybe you can speak a little bit to what are your favorite questions to help brands ask so that they can get those really good answers? Yeah. Well, so my, my favorites personally also related to, to, to the growth hacking and to understanding the customer better is to do this, like these digital experiments on, on, on like a, a Alibaba platform. Right. So, and the, the questions relate to what's my hero product, right? We, we did a, a research for a beer brand and they didn't know it was a flavored beer, which flavor would work well. And then the most common thing is either a lot of companies do desk research or uh, you would have like an, a panel. But still, if you'd ask me, you know, putting people in a room where you pay them to give their answers, to what extent, you know, does that maybe bias their, their, their answers? So I would say like a very independent or objective way sorry, to, to do such thing is just create different banners. And just the only thing you change is the flavor and, and, how, and see what customers respond better to uh, and, and based on the data, right? So it goes from the star products to what should be our uh, target audience, right? You can do a lot of testing with different audiences and see what works best related to, uh, I, I always find a very interesting one, the price versus the features of a product. Uh, are consumers willing to pay a bit more if there are more features on a, on a product, right? You call them conjoint mm-hmm. analysis. But these for me, like is very practical things to understand uh, anything related to your marketing mix. So either your product or uh, promotion strategy or packaging and uh, so related to marketing and, and e-commerce insights. That for me excites me most. Interesting. Okay, thanks. Well. Do you have any other sources of other people's data, the third-party data that you may have access to and that you enjoy, that you find is actionable and very usable? Uh, and to what extent do you trust the data that you see being provided by third-party sources in China? Sure. I think, you know, slightly coming back to, so when, when you're talking about like more the, the first person, it, besides, you know, like you can do your own experiment, talk with the, 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 your partners also should have access. They have a lot of feeling with your brand if they work with you and, and, and know a bit about the market. So this is where we get a lot of, I would say, firsthand data uh, from their sides. And if you don't have such partners here locally, if you can't communicate directly with the consumers, if you don't have the means to, for instance, to like use a survey tool or all of that, then indeed you could go like to the to the third party data sources. There are so many of them. Daphne Town, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing all of your information, all your insights, all your experience. It really was a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.